1: All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, you know, when I was trying to figure out what to talk about today, uh, of course the logical uh, topic would be the government shutdown. But I kind of figured that you all are hearing more than you want to about the government shutdown. And instead of, um, you know, going into all the details and, and blaming, you know, who's everybody's blaming each other for it and all of that. Um, I mean, we don't need to keep hearing about that. What we need to do is to have a cure for the bad news blues. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. The Cure for the Bad News Blues, and my guest is the perfect person to be talking about this and giving you um, some uh, clues as to what you can do. Although it's hard to change some world events, um, you can change your reaction to them. And my guest, Cindy Stevens, who is the author of a book called The Happiness Lie, What Generations Have Been Told That Makes You Unhappy, is going to... Um, Show you what you can do to find the happiness you deserve now before we before Cindy makes us all feel happy <laughs> right cindy that 's what you 're going to do <laughs> um, I just want to say a few words i can 't help but say a few words about what 's happening with the government shutdown, and I promise to make it a few but i i 'm those of you who have been listening for a while. Know my opinions about this. You may not. Some of you, of course, are not going to agree. But um, I, this is my show, so I get to say what I what I think about these things. Um, you know, of course, I mean, no one wants a government shutdown, but I think that it was incredibly, incredibly courageous of the people in Congress the, who voted or who have been doing all they can to um, to make this happen, or let's put it this way, to, to try yet again to prevent Obamacare from prev- prevailing. It's not that anybody, anybody in Congress, wants the government to shut down, but it is that people feel strongly, and I totally agree with them, that Obamacare would be the death knell for this country, literally, it is... Um, something that is going to bring people terrible, terrible medicine. It's going to literally affect how long you live and how long your granny and your grandpa live and your mother and your father and anybody else that you care about. Because as a physician, who, by the way, is not dependent upon Obamacare, I mean, it is not going to affect my bottom line one way or the other, um because I don't accept insurance to begin with. I mean, I don't deal with insurance companies, and I certainly would not want to deal with the bureaucracy of Obamacare, also because I'm totally against the philosophy of it. But I think a lot of you, and again, of course, I'm addressing the people in America, and I know that this is going out all over the world, uh, where you don't have to worry about Obamacare or where you may already be having socialized medicine, and you can agree totally with what I'm saying, um, that um, American doctors did not go to medical school to be told how to practice medicine by the president, who is not a doctor. And um, it, ha- it is a situation where doctors are more depressed and demoralized than ever, and a lot of them are quitting medicine right and left. They're retiring early. They're doing something else um They're, you know, they're they're getting depressed and being treated for uh, trying to find treatment themselves for depression. Um, You know, it is not a happy situation. America has been sold, or a lot of America. I mean, the majority of Americans don't want Obamacare. Still, don't want Obamacare. So Congress is really listening to the will of the people. But for those who have been sold a bit of a bill of goods. That this is going to, you know, make medicine less expensive. That everyone's going to get essentially free medicine or or um, low cost medicine. You know, low cost insurance by Obamacare. That's all very fine and dandy, except for the fact that there aren't going to be enough doctors willing to provide this kind of care. So it is just—it's the, the emperor is wearing no clothes, or in this case, Obama is wearing no clothes. <laughs> not a uh, not a, a pretty sight to conjure up. But in any case, um, uh, I mean, I'm I'm joking. I'm 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 trying to you know I'm being somewhat lighthearted about it, but it is really really a serious situation. Because doctors will not have the time to spend the time with patients the way they need to. In order for people to get cured and treated, um, doctors need to spend time asking about a history, asking about all kinds of things in a patient's life, examining the patient. There is no time for this in the structure of Obamacare. Because in order to stay afloat, I mean, lots of doctors are losing their homes they they can't pay their mortgage i mean it's already the things that the changes that have been made to insurance and and um, assistance and government assistance and so on already is causing many doctors to lose their home and and not be able to continue to practice so i i mean i know that there's this whole um, this whole image of of uh doctors being super rich and taking advantage of patients and so on and sure i'm sure there's you know a bunch who do that but the majority are not doing that, and the majority have come into medicine to help people. And when they went to medical school, Obamacare was not on the horizon. And right now, with you know, since Obamacare has been on the horizon and um, been you know coming closer and closer, more people are deciding not to go to medical school. The cream of the crop are not going to medical school, and instead, there are lots of doctors. Um, uh, who, you know, are not practicing the best medicine, the medicine you would want for yourself or for your loved ones. And um, this is so, you know, so it is not a free lunch or a free trip to the doctor. This is something really serious. And so I, the people in Congress who voted, you know, to try to attach the passing of the budget, the, to the to uh, or the, of or the funding to um, holding off on Obamacare, making changes in Obamacare, and so on, they are very courageous because they knew that their decision that when they you know when the government was shut down that they would not be the most popular kids on the block, and yet because they were they felt. Um, uh, because of the ideology, because they, they knew what what this was going to bring to America, what Obamacare was going to bring, they stood by this and have stood, you know, time and time again um, to, tr- to try to stop this from happening. It's unconstitutional. There are many things. I mean, it's unbelievable that the Supreme Court went ahead with all of this. Uh, there are constitutional scholars who have looked at this, and in so many ways it is unconstitutional. So, yes. They're trying now yet another way to try to prevent this from happening. So I just want to say that I applaud them for this. I, you know, of course we're going to be affected. We're all going to be affected in one way or the other by the government shutdown, some more than others. But it's not the end of the world. It's not the apocalypse. Apocalypse. It's not a scary movie where, there, where monsters and zombies are going to overrun America. So, it's you know, we'll get through it. But, in the meantime, hopefully, more people will have their eyes opened in terms of just how dangerous Obamacare is. and this idea, one of the things that bothers me the most about it, um, are the death panels that Obama you know is trying to. To cover up and pretend oh, they're not really death panels. by the way, none of them have doctors on them. Um, the whole thing is essentially not run by doctors. It's people that, that the president and, uh, gets to a point that the government gets to a point. And so the whole thing is just, as I started to say from the beginning, is just the death knell for Americans, so you need to think about this, and the problem is the, the bill, Obamacare, was so thousands of pages, and nobody really read the whole thing, including the congressmen who voted for it and of course that was done on purpose so, um, so you know, it's going to be a sad day when people start waking up um, if this isn't stopped in time waking up to what this really means and then, you know his, I, I think there's going to be uh, well, you know there's going to be well people are going to be really angry, and there might be some revolt of sorts, but it might be too late at that point, so I mean it's going to be harder to change things once the more the the more they start getting put into practice, the harder all these things are going to be to change so I think that this should be a wake up call to all of you to really investigate but from a um a neutral standpoint what really is in. Obamacare and what it really means. All right. Now we'll get to happiness. Now that I've made you all angry and depressed and <laughs> thank goodness I have my guest, Cindy Tevins, who will uh <laughs> who will turn this around. But but I, I'm I'm really you know, I really had to say all of that because it really it really is scary um, as to what what kinds of things could happen. I mean I just, just a personal anecdote. My mother was just recently in the hospital. She has high blood pressure. And she was in a a really good hospital in L.A. And um, they, you know, they didn't spare any expense. Um, And she's, you know, been in the hospital from time to time over the past several years, or not several, but four or five years. And each time she has gotten all the tests and, you know, expensive tests and all the things that she needed. But, you know... And fortunately, she has continued to to, to live and to uh, to um, get back to health. But that would be a very different story if Obamacare was in place. Someone would be judging whether my mother at her age and um, whatever else, you know, would go into it. She's a book author. Maybe that would help her out. Um, but I don't want someone judging when and whether my mother should live or die and withhold the treatments and the and the uh, exams the um, the tests and all of that that were needed to to allow her to, to leave the hospital in a healthy state so you know this i mean this has hit close to home for years and um just think about who it was in your family who had some serious illness um or maybe yourself and what you would be getting, or who would be decided. It's not even what you would be getting. I mean, that's part of it, but it's who would be deciding other than you what kind of tests and treatment you would be getting. Oh, my goodness, it's already the break. I didn't mean to go on for so long, but obviously I feel so strongly about it. promise we get to happiness when we come back. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, and stay tuned for my happiness specialist, Cindy Teven
3: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's
1: Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. I promised you happiness. We're talking today (laughs) about the cure for the bad news blues. My guest is Cindy Tevens. Her book is called The Happiness Lie, what generations have been told that makes you unhappy? Now, before, um, Cindy gets into all of that, I, I, I want to say that she's someone, she's not just, you know, one of these rah rah people who, um, are like, um, get happy cheerleaders, but she's rather someone who walks her talk because her whole launch into her career as a happiness specialist came after she personally suffered a devastating tragedy. So, Cindy, welcome to the show.
4: (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Carroll.
2: A pleasure to be here with you. Now, um, uh, let's start. Before you you, um, tell us about your devastating tragedy, could you just um, give us a a sort of a... I always put my guests on the couch. So, could you just um, give us like a little bit of a a story before before that? Like where Uh, you were born and where... And what you were doing before that.
4: All right. So where I was born, I was actually born in Germany. I was uh, an army brat.
2: Huh. Yeah.
4: And my father was in the Air Force. And um, then we came back to Canada after, uh, well, we went to France after three days. And then we came to Canada after three months. So I've lived most of my life in Canada. And um, from that, uh, there is no connection between my past and my current present. It would appear. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a horse crazy girl and I got involved with horses and I ran a children's day camp and later I published a horse magazine and then
2: everything changed. Oh my God, you know, I, I obviously didn't know that about you. I ride horses. (laughs) Yes, I have two horses, one that's kind of out to pasture and one that I'm currently riding and competing on. And so, yes, um, and talk about happiness. (laughs) Some of the (laughs) happiest moments are spent on my horse. Yes,
4: yes, they are something special. (laughs) They are something special. But I left the horse world. Um, not because of the tragedy. Uh, There were other tragedies, let's call them. We'll we'll leave in the past for now. And I left them and um, went off into the publishing and print business Hmm. and um, then the consulting business. And then my own internal suffering actually started before the big trauma. We'll call it the big trauma. Um, And it was sort of an existential one, you know, um, what are we doing here? How do we get here? Where do we go from here? What's the point of this? You know, those kind of questions that started as a child and were never answered and always kind of stewed, uh, hidden beneath. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it was uh, just prior to that uh, drama where it increased. It got quite, quite high, this internal questioning. And I began searching. I searched different religions. I read different books. And then it happened. My father had suffered extreme depression of his own, uh, and he was on drugs, and he was getting worse, and um, one day he shot himself.
2: Hmm.
4: And I was supposed to go out to see him on his birthday, and I hadn't been able to get a hold of him all weekend. Nobody could, I found out. And so the day I was prepared to go over anyway, I you know, grabbed the cake and bottle of wine and everything and, and took off, quite knowing that something was wrong. And I got to the house and, you know, I found him. He was still alive. And we, you know, the police came, the ambulance came, and the police didn't uh, let me go to the hospital. They, what? Yeah. They um, took me in for questioning, actually. <laughs> what? Yeah, they... <sighs> couldn't be sure that I was not the shooter. Oh my God. Yeah, even though he had left a note in the whole deal, you know, so, and that was a shock. That was like an extra trauma on top of the trauma. Yes, because you couldn't spend those last moments with him. Exactly, that was what was going through my head. In the meantime, I'm dealing with the shock of of having found him and uh, the, whole, the whole deal of that. Uh, so... They took me in and questioned me for a while, and then it was like everything turned on a dime again. Then it was, oh, you poor thing. Would you like some counseling? Mm, (laughs) mm. Yeah, and then I said, no, I just want to get to the hospital. Get me to the hospital. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I arrived, and then family started arriving, and um, I I got the news from the doctors that there were actually two bullets. Uh, which is just astounding that he mm. was, to me, still alive, mm. and that he was able, you know, able, able to pull off two bullets. Um, and they told us that when he came, you know, to, which they had him under sedation, and so they controlled that, and then they were going to take him off of it, and that when he came to, whatever um, cognitive ability he had when he came to would be it sort of thing mm. within the first, you know, few days. Because they were quite concerned that he would be, you know, very disabled and didn't know to what degree he would uh, Because be able he shot to himself in the head? Once in the head and once in the chest. I see. Oh dear. So yeah. they
0: you
4: know, they dealt with the, the chest one and that was under control. So the bodily functions were under control. Um, but they just didn't know about the, the damage, you know, to the brain. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, waited that time out and I slept in the chair beside him. And two days later, he, nothing came around. I mean, no movement, barely his eyes fluttered. And, uh, family had come from, from all across, uh, the country, really. And everybody was sharing little bits of pictures of his life. What, mm. how this, you know, and my question the whole time was, how did this come to be? And so I was collecting bits and little pictures from everybody else and putting the whole picture together of just what went on for him. In any case, uh, he never came around, really. We all knew he wouldn't want to live like that, so we mm. decided to wow. pull life support. Hmm. And, when, you know, and once again, they didn't know how long it would take for whatever to happen.
2: Uh-huh. You know?
4: Would he live months? Would he live hours, minutes, days? Um, they didn't know. And as it was, it took seven days. Oh, well, wow. Yeah. And I was there uh, the morning and the moment that he passed. Hmm.
2: Mm. Now, I take you know, it you were really close with him. I had
4: become the closest to him that I had all my life, Um I used to go visit him on week, you know, weekends on Sundays and go out and have dinner. But he, he really struggled a lot in his life. I mean, he struggled with money. He struggled with alcohol. He struggled in many ways, uh, with relationships and work and, um, the you know, the things that happened to him that sort of, I look at it like everything was a nail in the coffin, you know, mm-hmm. one more, one more, one more nail. And one of the last few things was he had a roommate um, that was his best buddy in the whole world. And this fellow had a stroke in his truck mm. one day. And he took him to the hospital. And, and that was his extra source of income, not just his buddy. Mm. And um, he took him to the hospital, but that man never recovered from the stroke to the degree that uh, he could come back. And my dad believed he would, could come back, and he kept the room open for him. He refused mm. to get you know, to get somebody else, so there was another financial drain, and um, he never came back, and that was just one more nail, so he, there were a few unfortunate things, you know, toward the end that I saw how this had all come together, uh-huh. and I also saw a fascinating thing is that everybody played a role in his life, but, but there's no such thing as a separate life. Hmm. Uh-huh. That was a huge sort of eye-opener, but I didn't have too much time to consider these, you know, deep things at the time because there were things to do and uh, clean up. And and when I left the hospital that day, you know, I was walking through the hallway and I realized nobody knew what had just happened. It was like, I'm alone again. Mm-hmm. But I promised dad the day I was walking through the hospital that this would not be for nothing. And I had no clue what that meant. I just knew that it would that it would mean there would be some meaning to this. And initially, I thought it was his struggle, his financial struggle. But I realized later that's a symptom, not a cause. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And it started me on a quest. Really, I didn't know it at the time, but it started me on a quest to find an end to suffering. You know, I thought I had to learn to control my state so that I could feel good no matter what was happening around me. And ultimately, um, that happened, but it wasn't me controlling my state. (laughs) So his suicide led to the discovery of of joy, of unlimited, unconditional, (laughs) unattached joy that I know we're all capable of.
2: Okay, and so now you... (laughs) Now, can you take us from that, I, I guess, pro- probably the lowest moment in your life, so when you were walking down the hall and feeling alone? Yeah. Yeah, walking along,
4: feeling alone, made this uh, sort of vow to him. And I uh, think they were selling jewelry in in, in the hospital. for lack of knowing what else to do, I mindlessly wandered over, picked up a ring and and bought it as a reminder that, that this would not be for nothing. Uh-huh turned out, the only ring I liked there, it had a dolphin on it, (laughs) Uh ironically. Um, And that started me on this quest. So I started looking, researching, reading, um, self-help, religions, um, everything I could get my hands on. I took master, I took NLP practitioner training to the master Mm. level. And still, you know, in the end, I thought, oh, NLP, this is it. And in the end, it wasn't it. Hmm. It was close, (laughs) but no cigar. You know, we were telling ourselves that we can control our state, but I knew darn well I couldn't. I knew that if something, you know, major happened that I would lose it. And so I took that and I continued on, still looking, and then my own internal intense suffering began to arose, unrelated. This was about six years later. Um, and unrelated to dad. And it was about being denied something that I thought I had to have. You know, and everybody has experienced it, the denial of love. Hmm. Um, And not only was I feeling denied love, I was feeling rejected. I was feeling lack of human dignity, disrespect, abandoned. Um, hmm. a, lo- a lot of really ugly things, you know, uh, is what I was feeling. And, you know, in our society, people may agree, oh, yeah, you have good reason <laughs> to suffer. You have good reason to feel that way. Um, but I refused to believe that. Somehow I knew that it, it wasn't the outside that was causing this. Somehow, you know, we're all told and we've heard that, nobody else is hurting us, that, you know, sometimes we say we let them hurt us.
2: (laughs) Uh Uh-huh.
4: I think that's a symptom of a society that's trying to outgrow an old belief but doesn't quite know how to because it doesn't know what else is available. Uh Uh-huh. So I knew it wasn't outside of me mentally. And because I knew that, I refused to blame anyone. I refused to... um, Blame them with my mind, with my thought, with my feelings. I just wouldn't go there. And normally what we would do, right, is we'd blame somebody. And we might feel a little bit better, but it always has, leaves a bad taste in the mouth. Mm-hmm. It's never, never pure. So two things happened to me. I refused to blame the outside, and I wanted only love, joy, and happiness for myself and others in every way. So basically I boxed myself in. This we, is why. It, go ahead. What? This is why I I later called um, my first book uh, the Alchemy of Love and Joy.
2: Yes, and you know uh, we need to t- stop to take another break, but um, this is probably a good place to do it because now we all want to know about that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we're taking another break. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. My guest is Cindy Tevens, the author of The Happiness Lie, What Generations Have Been Told That Makes You Unhappy, and her first book, Alchemy. So stay tuned. You're listening, as I said, to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
3: Tune into Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
2: Bringing you today the cure for the bad news blues with my guest Cindy Tevens, who is um, the, a happiness specialist. And she, we're following along on her journey from starting from actually um, her being a child and having some of the same existential questions that we all have that we kind of push away by getting busy in life, you know, finding things to uh, occupy our minds so that we don't have to think about our mortality or what we're doing here or why we're doing it and what the meaning of life is and all of that. And then following her along to her, her most devastating tragedy, which was um, finding her father who had shot himself and uh, ultimately resulting in his death. And um, then her, how that started her on her quest, that um, that that taught her eventually how how to find happiness, how to create happiness. And so we were um, we were kind of just leaving the hospital. Well, we no. And then then you were talking about how something else happened after that in reg- another. Um, Uh, devastating event, uh, feeling denied of love and being rejected and abandoned and so on. and And we're following along on your quest, which apparently led to the first book called Alchemy. So take us from there. Perfect. Very good. Yes. So I had boxed myself in,
4: meaning I refused to blame another for my pain. And I wanted only love and joy. So I wanted to feel only good. And it wasn't that I just wanted it. It was zero tolerance. I came to a point of zero tolerance because understand I had spent weeks in debilitating pain crying in the bed, unable to, to function properly. And I came to a point zero. Well, either this has to end now. Um, but I'd promised my dad, so suicide for me was out of the option. Mm. That would be a failure. So I had no choice but to stop. And it was in that moment of stopping that I heard or knew or remembered that you can give yourself whatever you want. Because I had been doing this torturous back and forth, I want this, and then, but you don't have that, was the reality and the reminder. But I want this, but you don't have that, I want this. It was just like a tornado ripping me up inside. And every I want thought was like a shard going deeper and deeper. Mm Mm-hmm. And so that moment of, well, you can give yourself whatever you want, was kind of, huh, what? (laughs) And then I went back into the suffering, but I hadn't missed it. And that turned a little bit more. And then the thought came, well, if that were true, then for certain it's not outside of me, for certain it's inside. And then I turned my attention inside. And the next question was begged, well, if that's true, what do I want? And in an instant the moment I put my attention on what I do want, which was love, acceptance, dignity, and above all, really love, it happened. All the energy that was being used to suffer flipped over, and it was intense, into the most intense love, joy, peace, <laughs> bliss, acceptance. and uh, It was mind-blowing. Completely mind-blowing, because mine said that can't be. You can't feel good because ABCD has happened. But I went, oh, my God, this is such relief. And so I did a bit of flip-flopping back and forth for a little while because I wasn't, wasn't really even sure what was happening. I certainly had no words for it. But because I was done with hurting and I only wanted to feel good and this was such relief, I stayed with it. And eventually mine settled down and it stopped arising so much. And then I started going around <laughs> on a high. I had weeks of bliss. And happiness, it didn't matter what I was doing,
2: I was happy. Well, wait happy. a minute, you lost me here. <laughs> <laughs> I lost me too. <laughs> um, where did this feeling of, you're saying it came from inside you, Yes. how did you conjure that up?
4: <laughs>
2: well, what I learned
4: in that moment, and, it, and like I said, there were no words at first. I had no words for this, and I can explain where the words came from later, But what I learned is that we actually don't want things, people, or events. We want the feeling we mistake them for. Yes. And that feeling exists where? (laughs) Within. It doesn't exist in people, things, or events. It's not there. And so it's always available to us. We just didn't
2: know it. Okay. (laughs) And how? Okay, and so, but how does a person go from that? I mean, I can see, you know, being determined to not suffer, and and even recognizing that it's not in people, um, Mm. things, or events. But then, okay, and then that's comforting, (laughs) you know. Um, And yes, I can even see that that it could come. The feeling, the pure feeling could come from inside ourselves, but I don't see how a person conjures that up just by sort of intellectually understanding this.
4: Yes, because everybody has tried positive thinking, right? Think positively and, you know, that's been the movement recently, right? But thinking positively is one of the most miserable things you can do. (laughs) Because if you're feeling bad, bad thoughts come easily and effortlessly, Yes. If, you're feeling, if you're feeling good, good thoughts come easily and effortlessly, right? So yes. you could be feeling on top of the world and anything can happen and you, you don't get knocked off, right? <laughs> well, or,
2: sometimes, depending upon what's making you feel good and what's making you feel bad, but okay, yeah. yeah. And I that, mean, you're able to tolerate a lot more when you're feeling on top of the world because of whatever. Okay, yes.
4: And what you just said is the happiness lie. What you just said is depending on what is making you happy or unhappy, the happiness lie is the belief that things, people, or events make us happy or make us unhappy. And that's not true. (laughs) It's not true because the happiness is not in things, people, or events. But because we believe it to be true, that's our experience. You see, that day, that belief in me was broken fundamentally, I mean, it was just limping along. And as a result, things, people, or events no longer make me happy or unhappy.
2: Hmm. Okay. (laughs) So could you describe it a little more? I'm still kind of, I I believe that, I see that. But But how do you get in t- I guess the question is, how do you get in touch with whatever it is inside of yourself that okay. brings out or, or makes you feel that pure happiness? Yes. So what I show people now, see,
4: the happiness life shows people how to be happy for life without controlling thoughts or healing the past. Okay? And I had no words for it. Like I said, I was just doing it. And I went around for weeks doing it. And then I was bursting because I had to tell somebody because it is actually so simple. I had to tell somebody that it was happening. I still didn't have words to explain how it was happening. And I went to a friend's place. We were going to work on her business. And I thought, I can tell her. I think that she's not going to think I'm crazy. <laughs> uh huh. Not, not too crazy anyway. So I arrived and we were, you know I was all ready and she looked down she had this problem. I'm like, oh <laughs> I can't tell her. I can't come in and say, hey, everything's great. there's no problem. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I looked at her and I'm, you know, and I said, So what's up? And she started to tell me. And as she told me, it was like I was remembering my shift and what happened to me. And the questions came through me to her and she shifted on the spot. Hmm. She had this stunned, you know, deer in the headlight look. And I went, oh my God, these are the words. (laughs) And so I wrote them, I was scribbling them down, you know. And I kept trying to say, well, we've come here to work for you. I'll put this aside, but it was just burning. It was like a volcano that just wanted to explode. So I kept telling her that, oh, I'll work on this later. But by that time, she was intrigued. Wait a minute, what just happened, you know? (laughs) She's trying to process what just happened for her. And so... She asked me more and more questions, and all of it came out in this ethereal, colorful language, um, you know, talking about the joy and the bliss and the happiness, and and um, the more we spoke, the more the words came out, and I captured them all down, and I wrote a book in a week.
2: Hmm. And that's the alchemy book?
4: That was alchemy, yes. Mm-hmm. The alchemy of love and joy is what I call the practice. You see, I asked her questions, and it was basically started it was the questions that I asked myself that, that uh, led to the shift in state. And it started with the very first question. The only one that was really clear in my mind, which was, what do I want? What do I want? And since I've been working with people, I've found that nine times, or eight or nine times out of ten, they tell me what they don't want. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want this, and I don't want that, and... Um, We are so good at knowing what we don't want. And why is that? It's because we believe in the happiness lie. We believe things make us unhappy. And so we think we need to change them in order to be happy. Mm, mm, Okay. All
2: right. I get it.
4: Yes. (laughs) Yes. And we don't, actually. See, what hurts us is never the thing, the person, or the event. Never. What hurts us is our thought about the thing, the person, or the event that we are choosing to believe. Not the thought itself, because no thought can hurt you. But when you put your powers in them, and everybody was born with three powers that they're not aware of, <laughs> when you put your powers into them, then they come to life in your experience, and then you experience them. Okay, and what are these three powers? So the first power is one that you're born with. You can't turn off, you can't turn up, you can't stop, you can't be without, it never leaves you. It's so obvious that we miss it it's the power of awareness. So as we're sitting here talking, you might notice other sounds in the in, or even birds outside and it's effortless. It's completely effortless. Mhm. Uh-huh. That's one. And to recognize that it's there, I show people how to use it. Okay? So just the first step is recognizing, oh yes, that's there. Okay. Mhm. Uh-huh. The second power is your power of attention. And this is the one that gets us in trouble a lot. So your power of attention. Can I demonstrate it? Would you like to play? Uh, sure. <laughs> okay. So your power of attention. Uh, I I can demonstrate it by asking one question. Are you feeling your left foot right now?
2: <laughs> Not <laughs> until you ask me the question.
4: Right. Okay. So we looked at that. We traced it. So what happened? Had you stopped? Had your foot stopped feeling?
2: Mhm no it's that yeah. we're not we're not paying attention to it.
4: Right. And but the reason you're not paying attention to it is because your attention is elsewhere. Right. Your attention is contracted elsewhere. And so whatever you put your attention on is what you
2: get. Mm. Well, now my attention is being distracted by the fact that we need to take another break. Yes. (laughs) So my left foot is going to have to rest where it is for a minute. And when we come back, we'll uh, hear from my guest, Cindy Tevens what our third power is. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
3: Welcome
1: back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with you today about the cure for the bad news blues. Not the bad news bears, but the bad news blues. (laughs) Um... And I guess this is Cindy Tevens. She is the author of the, her first book, Alchemy, and her uh, next book, The Happiness Lie, What Generations Have Been Told That Makes You Unhappy. And uh, this is all really fascinating. Uh, we were, she was talking before the break about three powers that we have that we don't really utilize enough, and it's absolutely true. Um, awareness attention i mean there's so many beautiful things that going around going on around us at any given time that we're not aware of we're not putting our attention on and that could really be making us happy instead of the things that we are aware of we are putting our attention on which are the problems or things that are making us miserable so what is the what's the third power
4: (laughs) all right just before i jump to that
2: uh... On the subject of the power
4: of your attention, mm-hmm. your, power, your power of attention is much like your power of breathing. If you don't take conscious control of it, it goes on autopilot. hmm As you just experienced, uh, you were able to take control of it and then you noticed your, feet, your foot. Mm-hmm. So if you don't take conscious control of your power of attention, it just wanders from here to there uh, automatically on whatever your habitual stream of thinking is is where it will go. hmm So if you're habitually thinking negatively and bad, sad things, then it goes there and you're not even aware that you have the ability to not go there. Mm, Yes. Okay. And so that comes to the third power, which is your power of interest. What are you most interested in? Because what you are most interested in is what you will get. See, I became most interested in only love, joy, peace. I had no interest in anything that felt bad. Hmm. And so thoughts are options. They're not mandatory. Merely because a thought arises in your experience doesn't mean you have to believe it. It's the brain's job to churn out thoughts, and it does a brilliant job of it, right? Putting, what, 40,000 thoughts out a day? Yeah. But we're not aware of them all, right? We don't choose them all. But there are certain ones that we choose, right? <laughs> certain ones that we believe to be true. We choose them by putting our power of attention on them and believing them and putting our interest in them. Uh-huh. And so those ones you will experience. See, in that moment for me, I had been most interested in what went wrong, how I was neglected, how I was abandoned, how I was rejected, how I was, okay, and that's what I was feeling. It's that direct. When I became not interested in that, and I became interested in only love, joy, peace, and I put my attention on that, my power of attention on that, that's what I
2: got. Yes, well, that that makes sense. I mean, that's, um, um, I mean, are, are you similar to, are are you sort of, I'm sure you're familiar um, with Ask, Believe, Receive.
4: Yeah, I'm not so um, keen on that because the way I look at it is that everything is out there at all times. It's not like you are creating something that wasn't there or drawing something that wasn't there. It's all there. It's just what are you looking at? You know, if you put a red filter over your eyes, you'll see red. Mm-hmm. Because that potential is there. If you put a blue one, you'll see blue. Right? Yes. So your power of attention is much like that filter.
2: I see. You're, you're okay. Mm-hmm. You're envisioning it in a different way, and I like that. Um, imagining it being f- like glasses or a filter. Um, where you would only see those, where that would be what you would see. Okay, yes.
4: Yeah. And I had a direct experience with this twice with uh, someone who I met who I, I couldn't really, you know, there was something wrong with him when I saw him and I couldn't figure it out. And I met him three times and I couldn't figure it out over three weeks. And the third time I was sitting with him, I couldn't even hear him because something was bothering me. So I started to ask myself questions about what I thought I already knew. Basic questions like the color of his shoes, his clothes, his hair. And I got to his eyes, and I went, blue, oh, great, oh, he has two different colored eyes. And in my model of the world, that didn't exist for human beings, so I couldn't see it.
2: Hmm. Hmm. And
4: then suddenly, false knowledge fell away, and I could see what was always already the case. Uh-huh. So everything is always available to you, but you have uh, beliefs and knowledge and interest in these beliefs, And acquired knowledge as thought knowledge, not as truth, is a difference. And so whatever you put your belief and power of attention into, you will experience. And it has nothing to do with anything outside
2: of you. This is your choice. So okay, so it's a slightly different take on the law of attraction because the law of attraction is mm-hmm. really about bringing um, people things. I mean, it could be about be bringing people th- attracting people things and events to you.
4: Yeah. Whereas no, it's not what you're saying is,
2: <laughs> what did you say? Yeah, no, it's not about the law of attraction. <laughs>
4: yeah.
2: Uh, you know, I'm like saying it's huh? all out there contemplating money, if that's what you, um, you know, ask, believe, receive. <laughs> Could I have yeah, a pot no. of gold? Um, <laughs> and, of course, you know, that is, um, I mean, the world is really going crazy. Uh, before today, I mean, it's getting crazier and crazier, and it's very worrisome to me, and, of course, we, we know that. Um, I mean, it's worse in in the States than in Canada, where you are. I think it's easier to be... <laughs> in Canada. <laughs> oh, I don't,
4: no, you can be miserable anywhere. Well, that's true. That's you know,
2: true. <laughs>
4: I work with people who are, who are miserable about their hair. Yes. And they can be anywhere, but you see, and they think that it's simplistic and that it's silly to be miserable with their hair. I said, you know what? This isn't about your hair. This is about your self-image, your self-belief, your thoughts you're putting your attention on. Those are what's hurting you. Your thought about yes. your hair is not hurting you. Yeah. And, and the hair itself is not hurting you. <laughs> right? And so, it's completely about like, the thoughts that are believed are ones like, well, I have no value. If my hair isn't just right, I have no value. Mm-hmm. Uh I what's the point of living? Now, so,
2: that so, is a painful thought. Yes. So how do you I know we don't have very much time left, but could you give us an example of um I know you work with people all over, and and um, I mean that, that's one example. But could you just give us an example, sort of, a, of how you would like that? Even that person, how you would change? How did you get that person or some other person to change from um, being in the miserable state because of of concentrating on people, things, and or events, to okay. to being happy?
4: So basically, what I do is I help them shift state. So they get the state that they thought they had to have, right? That they had to have, and they get that state without getting the thing they thought they had to have.
2: Wait, what do you mean?
4: <laughs> so, uh, say I wanted to be uh, respected. Mm-hmm. I felt that someone disrespected me. Right. So I get them to feel respect, respected. Okay, and. When they feel respected, and then they feel respect, period. And they feel respectful, and they cannot see disrespect.
2: But how do you get them to just conjure up respect, to feel should, respect, yeah. So in,
4: yeah, in alchemy, there's seven questions that I use. And the first question is the one that came to me in the middle of my own suffering, which is, what do I want? So you put your attention from what you don't want onto what you do want. And then the next question is, how does it feel? Because remember, we don't want the things, the people, or the events we think we do. We want the feeling. So they get to connect with the feeling that they want without actually getting the object. I see. And then from a better feeling state, they look back and realize, oh, I didn't need that. Oh, that doesn't matter. (laughs) And it blows the belief out of the water, which is exactly what
2: happened to me. I see. Okay, so basically it's through using these three powers. Yes, the power of awareness, the power of
4: attention, the power of interest. I just help them shift their interest and hold their interest on what they do want, not what they don't want. And the power of that
2: state is so amazing. Well, let me, I don't know if you can hear the music, but it's telling us that we need to stop (laughs) being so happy. (laughs) So let me give out your, your website, which is... TheHappinessLie.com. You can read both about uh, Cindy Teven 's both books, Alchemy and The Happiness Lie, What Generations Have Been Told That Makes You Unhappy. I mean, I, this is a, you know, it, it's obviously a, a very deep concept, but not one that's that unattainable. You've given us uh, mm-hmm. the tools to start, and I would recommend that people go to the website, get the books, um, and and dig into this uh, more rather than rather than concentrating on the bad news headlines. Um, <laughs> read about this and make and find that the happiness can come from within yourself. And and well, that's really really a wonderful story <laughs> and a wonderful um, gu- and wonderful guide for putting us into the right state. And let me tell you, um, more people need to do this because. Because so many people are acting out of hate, out of anger, out of you know frustration, because they're not getting the people, things, or events that they want, that they think they need to make them happy. So, exactly. Cindy, thank you. You've made us happy, <laughs> and thank you <laughs> thank all for listening. All my listeners make me happy. <laughs> You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.